0: So just to introduce you, John Esconis, who um, I think you have the wisdom to, to not become an online celebrity, although you probably could if you wanted to. Um, you are a professor of political science at the Catholic University of America, even though you yourself are not Catholic. Is that too personal a detail? To no, no, that's that's
1: to- totally open about my Anglicanism.
0: And then the weird thing is that it's an Anglicanism that's basically Catholicism, but it was this big beef over a divorce. It just it seems odd that... Um, you know, anyway, well, we can get into that, but um, absolutely. So yeah, I, I decided to to title this show because we didn't have like a, a specific agenda, but I suspect you know you're one of these people. You kind of remind me of uh, I don't know if you know Salma Borja of the Bismarck Group. Who, oh, yeah, um,
1: I, do. I know him a bit.
0: Yeah, he, he's an interesting character. I remember I was it was it was once at Hereticon on like the last day, so everyone was like totally hungover and underslept, and he was like walking towards the table we were having. Like our hangover breakfast, and someone mentioned European urban policy, and the guy goes into like the most cogent twenty-minute seminar on European ur- urban policy you could possibly imagine, and it's like, how did someone do that? And somehow I put you in that same category, John, where I can make, it, for example, <laughs> the political philosophy of of early, you know, Carl Schmidt, and boom, like a forty-five-minute lecture would disappear. Is that is that true, John?
1: Especially if you're talking about early Carl Schmidt, a m- much underappreciated figure.
0: Well, yeah, these days he's maybe a little bit on the hazy edge of the overton window. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, people, people well, I won't, I won't launch into my forty-five minute lecture, but he's, he's extremely misunderstood, maybe especially by people who are kind of boostering him in public.
0: Um, true, true. Um, for those who are, who are wondering at the Straussian subtext, Karl Schmidt had lots of interesting political ideas, then got wrapped up with the, law, the wrong people in nineteen thirties Germany. If that's any hint. Um, but that's not explicitly what we're here to talk about. I think we've got probably a bunch of interesting political ideas that are swirling around that I suspect you have views on. Um, one is one that this show has been a little bit thematically fixated on uh, for what I think are obvious reasons. The, the network state, we had uh, Balaji on, uh, I guess, just over a month ago in early July when his book launched. We had Dryden Brown of Praxis Society, which is trying to put some of um, Balaji's ideas into actual practice. Um, I actually wrote a review of Balaji's book and tablet um and uh that that's one thing uh there's of course uh all this post liberalism business going on in the in the new right that I've written about a little bit in the past um um i you know I might actually be going to the neckon conference in miami uh this year actually i mean that's in miami after all. yeah, I know I mean last year they held it in orlando, which let's face it is kind of a loser city <laughs> in in Florida not that I have any Miami <laughs> boy bias at all. <laughs> Um uh in in case I get canceled by the Orlando Chamber of Commerce. No, no, Orlando is not a loser city. It's just not near as exciting as Miami. It, it is extremely fast growing though. Um but yeah, I mean those are the, the thoughts, those are the topics I came up with. Um you also I have a monarchy and LARPing on the uh, yes. on the agenda. We probably yes. want to talk about any of that as well. Right. Um yeah, there's a lot of fandom for monarchy on on the right these days or or sort of intimations of monarchy and i think actually a lot of politics has become the politics of the larp the live action role play Mm -hmm. which is supposed to invoke a certain renaissance fair like you know slight nerdy obsession slash you know eh, kind of hobbyist take on you know you dress up as if it's like you know Fourteenth century France, but of course, the sort of people who are into that are precisely the sort of people who wouldn't survive exact even two seconds in that world. <laughs> yes,
1: yes. One of the, this is one of the great the great ironies of the LARP of them, particularly of the monarchist LARP. I've of always often had the feeling that people LARPing for monarchism do not have the physiognomy to become monarchs themselves, and they, right. they they sort of imagine that they would be the sort of gray eminence behind the throne, whispering to
0: the monarch's ear. But it's just as likely to be like a peasant or something yeah i mean yeah um it kind of reminds me of you know you know i love nietzsche nothing against nietzsche right but he was like this (laughs) nerdy sickly insane incel who somehow preached this gospel of the ubermensch and you know you have to see a little bit of a (laughs) of a little bit of larp in that absolutely but everything's a larp
1: now and that's that's one of the things we have to navigate is it Civilization.
0: Right. And, and you know, uh, Bruno Marsais, who I'm sure you've read or are familiar yes. with, um, I'm probably butchering his Portuguese name as a Spanish speaker would. Um, but, you, you know, what, he and I probably disagree on a lot of things. But he was one of the first people I interviewed on pull request, like two years ago or something uh, on his book about, um, God, the one about American LARPing. What was it called in the US?
1: Um, uh, well, the end of history, isn't it? Or no, the, the history has begun.
0: History has begun, exactly. Right, right, right. And his whole his whole thesis there is that everything has become like and it was written in the shadow of like COVID, right? So this is a couple mm-hmm. years ago.
1: But one of the ones. And then he wrote like an update, an update chapter. Right.
0: right, right. And he insisted I read that chapter. I think it only came out in either the American or the European edition. But um he, he, one line that stuck with me that kind of I think embodies the book is that he said, um, in in the United States, COVID seemed like a disaster movie, while in Europe, it just seemed like a disaster. <laughs> there, yeah, it's a good a, line.
1: But what struck me about what? that book, though, is I just I just reread it, like, a couple weeks ago, was he really blurs the line between fantasy. He, he doesn't seem to understand the line between fantasy, the distinction between fantasy and simulation. And I think if I had you know, one kind of theoretical point I keep coming back to is that a, a lot of the best thinking we have about about the world of simulation, the matrix, et cetera, it's all from like the mass media television era. And it hasn't been actually really updated for the internet as it actually arrived and the and what it means to have many to many communications. And actually biology is is actually astute on this on this point. Um,
0: so maybe that's something we can come back to. Well, can can you get into that a little bit? Because I I don't totally follow it, to be honest. (laughs)
1: Well, yeah, no, it's it's really simple, actually, which is, so he he writes about, um, so he has this notion, which I think is is interesting and true, that, right, that America is this nation defined by the American dream. The American dream for him isn't just like a piece of political rhetoric, it's sort of a foundational ideological structure that makes American civilization what it is. Um, and it's it's he I don't know if he I, don't, I think he quotes Baudrillard at some point you'd have to in a book well I I know he does actually because he writes a little bit about Baudrillard and the Gulf War but you know Beaujolais has this line where he says something to the effect of you know Disneyland isn't um, uh, Disneyland isn't like a simulation of America it is America um, or in other words Disneyland has this sort of function has a couple of functions one of which is that it's so obviously over the top fake. That America, which is otherwise is like very very new, very kind of out of no, ex nihilo civilization, seems more real. So like you go to you go to Main Street Disneyland, and it's like oh this is like a, a pastiche of Main Street, and then I go back to Main Street L.A., which was made you know which is you know 50 years old. Which is also has a kind of you know postmodernist fake fake old style, and I forget that it's actually kind of the same same kind of same thing. Um, I mean, he, he writes a little bit, if I recall, about like Ronald Reagan and the end of the Cold War, and he's sort of this Ronald Reagan is like literally a TV actor who's playing a, like tough on communist president, and it works, right? The, like the 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 line between like the 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 rhetoric and the fantasy of American masculinity and toughness, or whatever, and reality seems impossible to to penetrate. And that's all that's all well and good. And um, we, but I think what's distinct though is that fantasy kind of belongs to the world of television, right? World of of projected dreams, and that's a different world from the world of simulation, a world where we can enact. One, one reality or one, uh, one f- set of probabilities and possibilities amongst thousands of others, right? Um, and so when he, when he writes about American virtualism, he seems to have in mind one shared American virtualism. Like America is sort of pumping out this global virtual ideology, you know, a world of where the dollar is fake, right, where the economy is fake, where media is fake, et cetera, as a form of power, right? He thinks this is all about power, and I think he's he's a student at that point. But that's what we were doing in the era of sort of globe-spanning telecommunications. But the internet has layered many, many communications in and through that network. And so what we're actually seeing, right, is a breakdown of virtualism, right? The, The the institutions, the forces, the organizations that used to have the juice to produce this kind of virtual reality don't, can't do it anymore, right? The New York Times can't do it anymore. Broadcasting right. news can't do it anymore. Um, and so I think he aligns he you – know, he, he kind of takes us from fantasy into the virtual, and he's, he seems to say that they're kind of of a piece when they're actually cut in completely different directions
0: yeah I mean the many manyity point I think is a good one right Because if you read a lot of the early media theorists like mcLuhan postman, Borston, cetera, like they got a lot of things right and in arguably I think they got a lot of more things right than than media analysts yes. get now because they saw the split between the analog world to the to the virtual yes. world and so like it, it's like when it's like when you see the it's like when you're when you live through the inflection point, and you see the trend line better right because you see the abrupt yep. shift route while if you, you've just been in a gradually increasing slope, it's not kind of obvious what's going on. But one thing they missed was exactly what we just said, which is the many-to-many char- you know, character of it. They were still living in the one-to-many broadcast world of Walter Cronkite and whatnot. And us watching that peel off and, you know, Kevin Roos at the New York Times, just to name a name, who used to, like, post the top stories on Facebook and the fact that there was nothing by the Grey Lady and it was all, whatever, Ben Shapiro or something was horrifying to him, right? It meant that they yeah. you know... Um. Right. That 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 really it was a big break, and I think that that breaks a lot of models. Right. Like I think McLuhan was yes. right of a lot of things, but he also he, he got a few things either wrong or or like the the theory needs like a second a second version of it to address the fact that we're we're creating this virtual connection to the thing in our hands that has nothing to do with what NBC is doing. Not that anyone's watched NBC in you know fifteen years, but yeah, you know exactly. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's exactly right. And this is what I'm trying to to put in a plug. I'm, I'm writing the series of the New Atlantis called reality a post and the kind of the premise of the series is that the, the world of consensus reality, where we all kind of share the same picture of the world, is just gone not never never to return, uh, and right. that we're going to, we are entering a period where we 'll have sort of global you know non non localized in many cases non localized uh, alternative alternate realities where we 'll disagree about not just about sort of not, not just ideologically about like what 's good or good or beautiful. But even what's true, like what are the facts of the situation? Um, right. We already we are very close entering that world, and I think we've only just begun. Uh, and I and I don't think that's a, necessarily a bad thing. I think actually there's been so much energy and effort put into kind of tracing what's stressing about living through this about the problems of social media, so-called disinformation and misinformation, social fracture, polarization, etc. that I think we're missing some of the interesting opportunities as well as some some of what was really bad about the previous era. Like you go back and you what? look at like media culture in the 70s and 80s and it does not, does not seem healthy at all for democracy, for for culture, for for the truth. Um, and so I think we're going to enter we're entering into a much more interesting period in every sense of the word.
0: That's funny. you meant, Okay, interesting. This is something I've been, I've been noodling about a lot. And I'm glad you're you're someone who is smarter than I am is actually thinking about it. Because, you know, I, as someone who was always, for whatever reason, kind of straddled two different worlds, raised uh, bicultural right in Miami, in mm-hmm. which, like, you were raised in this weird exile diaspora, Hispanic, Spanish speaking world experience. And then but then in this also Anglo-Saxon American experience, and then of course, all hinged around what is this very polarizing flashpoint at least during the cold war of cuba right this business of like this business of the fact that that historically right like epistemic reality what you can forget even like values like what you consider to be true right Mm -hmm. if you were to sketch out the history of the world for the past century and what you consider to be true would be different right but typically that would follow the contours of a political map or a linguistic border, or whatever, and that's fine, right, like, 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 and again, if you were particularly bicultural or savvy or worldly, you would sort of see it if you read a French language biography of Napoleon and an English language biography of Napoleon, a different man emerges (laughs) from those two books. And, and, They're not, you know, one isn't necessarily better than the other. The English one will be wrong in some ways and better in some other ways, et cetera, but it's different. And, but as long as those models are somewhat self-consistent and the French can navigate the world insofar as Napoleon's involved, well, it's fine. Right. But I guess the problem now, and I guess I trace this to the fact that we've decoupled how information moves from the physical world, right? Like what you think and see and believe has nothing to do with the colored square on the map that you're actually standing on right that second. Right. And once you do that, once you liberate the individual, from geography and the motion of atoms, i.e. bits and information can flow freely, then I, I, I guess that's what your book is about. You're, you're creating these micro-bubbles of meaning. And in, in, in the case of Bology, what he wants to do, the analogy he cites is defragmenting a disk. For those of us old enough who used a Windows machine back in the day, <laughs> defragging a disk, like the, like the Windows OS was so backwards when it came to memory management, it would write memory all over the place, such that an application has to look all over the disk. And eventually got so slow, you have to do what's called defragging. What that means is you would copy data that was scattered all over the plate and put it in one area so that like the application would run faster. And so what he's thinking about is like, okay, like whoever the members of his little network state are scattered in three neighborhoods of New York versus San Francisco, wherever, let's just defrag it into one physical place and that's it and save us all the trouble. Um, um, I'll stop there because I've said a lot, but is that kind of what your book is about, John?
1: yeah well it's, it's it's starting off as a series of like six or seven essays So i think it, I've been in conversations with some publishers about there's some interest in publishing it. I think it'd be, you'd be good to pull it all together um i mean so so I certainly think that's sort of where when i when I get to the kind of prescription of where we're we heading i i I agree with biology in some important ways about about the um, about what what meaning making looks. Disagree about what politics looks like as a result of that, and we can get into that because I think I think you and I are on the same page that I think there's, there's the problem of the man with a gun that biology can't right. quite bring himself to deal with. Um, but uh, right now, I'm, I'm you know the first set is are much more prescriptive or descriptive, like th- looking at the world. How do we get to where we are? Like slightly a deeper history of the internet, a deeper history of media than we usually get. Like most histories of the internet and of media really deal with the last, like, 15 years and 20 years, which have maybe been the most whiplashing, most, uh, most change-inducing period in, in the media in world history, right? You go from literally the peak of legacy media news power in 1999, the peak of employment, the peak of cultural influence, the peak of percentage of GDP spent on advertising, like every single possible measure, peak of, of newspaper um, newsroom employment, you go from that to, you know, Google uh, Google ad revenue surpassing all newspapers in like 2010, like 11 right. years. So there's this huge whiplash effect. Uh, and then you also have the fact that you, that everyone is getting online at the same time that we, we're developing new internet technologies. And so you have all of these, as you a know, the political science, putting it my political scientists, you have all these kind of confusions of causation, of people seeing causation where actually there's correlation or confusing one process for another process. Like a lot of the – for example, a lot of the concerns we have about social media, I don't think have anything to do with social media. I think it has to do with the fact that literally everyone got online via social media as the kind of killer app for the internet because not everybody has hobbies. Not everybody has like Sway video games. but Everybody has friends and family and cares about this sort of social scene. But the problem is – Can I just stop there for a second, John? The internet. Yeah, go for it.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I totally agree with you. And it's funny, part of what drove me into the depth of despair to the point that I left media from like 2016 to 2019 is saying exactly that. And, and the argument for that that I would always cite is like, well, look at WhatsApp, right? Like WhatsApp is literally nothing Absolutely. but a messaging app that everyone has, even like the poorest of the poor in any country in the world. Yep. There's no feed, there's no ranking, there's no algorithm. Like Facebook owns it, but it doesn't do shit. It has Facebook has yep. nothing to do with how Facebook, how WhatsApp actually works. It's it literally all it is, is send text. Like imagine the thought experiment in 1994. We're gonna, we're gonna give you a magic power that is like a form of telepathy in which you can send, you know, a little blurb of text and photos to anyone in the world. We're just gonna turn that on for everybody. And you, you just fucking do that and you get total mayhem, right? And, and like the ranking and all the rest of it is like, it doesn't matter. Like you'll get the same yeah. level of mayhem. I mean, maybe it accelerates it faster in the sense that like the virality of the ranking means that it spreads a little bit faster than just organically going through WhatsApp groups. And so maybe there's a little bit of a difference in like the slope of the line, but we'd end up roughly in the same place no matter yes. what. Anyhow, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, so, so the, the, the you know, most of the, I think the first half of the series is really just trying to kind of st- take stock of of that question and then it moves on to like where do we go from
0: here so yeah i mean well you mentioned one issue you had and i guess this is also the issue you called it the the problem of the man with the gun which i i think is a is a variant of the problem and in my review of it which i put on Polar Crest and also on tablets Mm -hmm. you want to read it there although it's basically the same piece which is like you know would you die for the dow right like Yes. It, 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 you know, it, I was reading all this stuff, right? And again, I'm, I'm pro it to be clear. So I'm criticizing from a point of like constructive criticism, but it's like, dude, this is just like Zionism without Judaism, right? like, it's, yeah. it's all the, <laughs> the feeling of creating this thing, but, but there's no kind of, there's no cultural or religious there, there, right? Like it's, you know, what why, why should like, and, and again, I've hung out with some of the practice people and it seems very cool. And Dryden's very worldly. And he's definitely thought about it, the, and they rec, he recognizes this is a problem to be clear. Right. But it's like, you know, and like what? Like what is the you know where? Where is the exilic desire to get back to some homeland? Um, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm being too cynical about it. Maybe you have other thoughts about some of these projects.
1: Well, no, I, I don't think it's wrong. And I'm I'm sort of have two minds on this. The one thing so I will say this: um, I think Network Six is a very important book. I wish political scientists were taking these questions more seriously. So I'm, you know, I'm a political scientist by 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 having a PhD, I teach at university, tenure track, but. Um, I'm sort of very heterodox. Uh, certainly I wouldn't be working in a kind of like, you know, like mainstream political science department. Um, I'm lucky to be in a place where I have a little more freedom. Um, you know, political science isn't really taking these questions seriously yet, unfortunately. Um, you know, when you, I'm, I'm, my background is more in like security studies and when you hear people talking about the impact of AI, they're usually talking about Military, economic competition. They're not even thinking about what are the what are the second-order sort of social ramifications, social and political ramifications of AI, much less of the way that society sort of reordered by by these new technologies. I mean, international relations, which is my discipline, takes sort of 1648, the Thirty Years' War as its as its birthplace. But the Thirty Years' War wasn't caused by religion or the changing balance of power; those were contributing factors. It was, I mean, I think the formal cause of the Thirty Years' War is the printing press. Right, which radically oh, yeah, is the
0: epistemic structure of Europe. Um, right, right. So right, and it's and that and that by the way that parallel I've made often before, and it's like it's like a facile one to make, but the more you read into that period of history, which is a fascinating period of history, and it's funny there are mm-hmm. there actually aren't that many comprehensive history books about the printing press itself. Like, there's actually a lot of gaps in in Gutenberg's yep. biography that we don't know about, just because he was kind of he was actually kind of forgotten. His his grave, for example, is not known, and he was sort of resurrected later, as I'm sure you know. But the you know, if, if you look and you read like what were, used to be called the Flugschriften, like the little pamphlets that they would print at the time of, of Martin Luther, they, they almost look like Facebook posts, right? You've got this like outrageous <laughs> photo yeah. of like the Pope pooping out coins or fornicating with a nun or something completely outrageous that would probably get pulled down by Facebook co- content policy now. And you'd have like a little <laughs> caption and they'd fly up in an instant and they'd get copied, like literally they'd, they'd get to Lubeck from whatever, you know, Württemberg, or, and, and then the prince would in, instantly copy it and distribute it locally. And I, I think somewhere in, in Luther's memoirs, he's you know, he's, when he was on the way to the Diet of Worms, he mentioned that the news of him arriving there got there faster than he did. Like he was reading pamphlets about the, the whole scandal as he was getting there before he even got there. And so anyhow, the, the, the parallel is actually more exact than one thinks. And, you know, the, the more you read into it, the more you realize that, anyhow, I interrupted you, but go ahead, John.
1: Well, but that's exactly right. And you look, at, you look at everything that emerges in terms of like the nation state. I mean, one of the reasons the nation state wins yes. is that the nation state is the state organization that can wield the most military power in this new epistemic context, right? And the the tensions between the, between these emerging sort of centralized states and um, the church and the empire, the whole Roman empire, were already emerging. I, mean, I think this is where Machiavelli and the Italian wars are so important. And of course, those basically predate the Reformation um, so this things kind of all interact at the same time I sort of wonder how much of the kind of concept of the nation state biology is actually smuggling in with his con- with his notion of the network state and that would honestly be, be my big criticism of it so for example you know at one point pull up your uh, pull up your review right he he defines the network state as a social network with a moral innovation. A sense of national consciousness, a recognized founder, a capacity for collective action, an in-person level of civility, an integrated cryptocurrency, a consensual government limited by a social smart contract, an archipelago of crowdfunded physical territories, a virtual capital, an on-chain census that proves large enough population, income, and real estate footprint to attain a measure of diplomatic recognition. I mean, that's basically just a Westphalian nation state, right? You have, like… You have a, an allegiance between, like, society, a, a sense of na- nationhood, and the state as an organization that manages violence and manages, you know, certain uh, f- institutional functions. Uh, you have a founding myth. You have um, sort of norms of civility. You have a national currency. You have a national social contract. You have physical territory in the capital. You have a census. Um, it's, li- it's literally – the nation state concept, you know, digitized. And I think that that actually, when you see these really discontinuous shifts in global sort of um, technology, economics, population structure, you also see real discontinuities and fractures in what polities are, right? So I think the more interesting question isn't, you know, how do we kind of rejigger the concept of nation state? It's what comes, like, the, the question of what comes after the nation state shouldn't just be a slightly tweaked, recognizable version of the nation state. It's likely to be something much weirder.
0: No, I agree with you. It's funny, I was like joke tweeting earlier cause I got a pitch deck from some like crypto company and they were basically creating an API to address and share data with smart contracts through an API, <laughs> it was just like, wait, hold on. You just, <laughs> you, you just reinvented like the classic client server architecture that's been like the internet for the past <laughs> 20 years. Right? Yeah, exactly. not, if you're interacting with a smart contract with an API, you're just, you've reinvented the shared database that underlies a lot of it, but that's all you've reinvented. The rest of it is the same. And I, yeah, yeah it's kind of the same vibe here.
1: <laughs> yeah, you see, you see this in a lot of sci-fi, right? Like go back and read like Jules Verne and the thing that's like most discontinuous is not the technology, but right? You can imagine, obviously you account for like electricity, computing, things that were hard to imagine with basically like, steampunk type technology. But the, you know, the idea of like a flying car or a trip to the moon isn't crazy. What seems completely out of whack is the the social and political norms, right? Like you have like Edwardian gentlemen in top hats riding on flying cars. So, you know, I think that the social and political implications of technological change are much more difficult to imagine than some of the kind of technological, institutional, economic
0: uh, dimensions. Right. I mean, that's the problem with the Star Wars franchise and why let's really start a cancelable firestorm, John, why Star Trek is better than Star Wars, because... You've got this, like, ridiculous tribal imperial thing going on, right? Never mind, like, the inconsistencies and, in, like, wait, they have interstellar travel, but they have targeting systems on their rifles that's worse than what I could buy at, like, Cabela's right now. Like, why the fuck can't anybody hit anything, right? Like, they have worse aim than, like, a world I don't know. The, the
1: marksmanship in Star Trek isn't anything to write home about either.
0: <laughs> no, no. But, you know, at least there it's it's less of, like, a space opera. It's like, okay, you can imagine some sort of technocratic you know, interplanetary UN that kind of runs things, and anyhow, um, but yeah, the the fact that they have like you know old Roman style politics in what is this sophisticated thing seems yeah. <clears throat> odd. But yeah, I guess it's an extension of the startup truism, right? That like the problem every startup is never a technical problem; it's always a human problem, and so yes. the human problems are the ones that are hard to project forward at least on a trend line because you don't, you just don't know. Yeah.
1: So I guess I mean, if you want to kind of you know run down the problem, the problem of the man with the gun, it's, it's kind of three three inner interlinked dimensions the first is that any any network state that actually cheese um no again w- one thing in favor of Ology is I, I don't know if he realizes this but each of these network states is likely to you know there's, there's going to be a certain degree of heterogeneity between states and the degree of of homogeneity we've seen around the world in the form of the nation state is extremely extremely unusual historically right um and so i think we are likely to see that we are already seeing if you know where to look more heterogeneous kinds of states that will kind of exist internationally so it used to be for example that like you would have a you know you know venice a serene republic which is like a maritime trading republic and then you'd have the whole roman empire which is this massive uh land empire with like theo theopolitical characteristics and then you'd have the you know the you'd have You'd have China and the, the Chinese Empire and the Mandate of Heaven, and you'd have a you know network of tributary states around it. So you'd have all these like heterogeneous kinds of states. Um, so I think we're likely to see a return to that. Nonetheless, um, each of these states is going to have to protect itself, protect itself against massive amounts of military power. Um, there seems to be this notion that military power has is sort of the, the value of it is declining, or that the disparities of it are declining. Um, you know, sort of this meme going around with the Taliban in Afghanistan that, you know, this ta- these guys, AK-47s, could defeat the most powerful nation on Earth, yada, yada. And that's just, like, if anyone who's paying attention in Ukraine can see, that's just completely out of the window. Like, there has there's never been greater discontinuity of military power in probably world history, at least since, like, 1815, and, you know, the, when the Grand Alliance finally like put away Napoleon. Um Insane disparities of military power, even before you get to nuclear weapons. Um, so now what one, one theoretical possibility, right, and I, I think I saw a biology tweet about this, would be that, like, well, you know, nuclear technology is 80 years old. It's basically, like, as old as radio. Anybody can make a nuke in their, in their backyard if they know what they're doing. And so all these network states will have nukes. And I think that's just actually completely wrong for a number of reasons, which we can get into.
0: Um, interesting. Um, yeah. Well, one comment on Napoleon and, and you mentioned the nation state. I think often when discussing the nation state. I mean, I myself, when I read uh, Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you've read and is yeah. like kind of the classic volume. And, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's funny, I, I hadn't quite realized the nation state. It's a complicated topic and it's, it's a relatively recent invention. Right. And like, you know, we think we somehow think of like France is the same France going back to Charlemagne or whatever. Right. But of course, it's not. It's not the same no. France at all. And in fact, you know, exactly what you described, right, the Westphalian nation state, which is a continuous body with a capital and a politics that claims to speak for all and the notion of citizenship. These were all more or less kind of invented. I mean, Napoleon arguably created the French nation state, right, which is why his army did so well, because, as you said, the nation state that could actually have a census of all its citizens, actually tax effectively, actually centralize control, actually centralize the economy, had a massive advantage on the bizarre little principalities and fiefdoms and dynastic little empires—all this bullshit that used to exist before—and the French just got in there with this ability to centralize and standardize and just wrecked all of Europe based on that alone, right? And um, well, case, it's, it's even
1: more interesting than that, right? Which is, I mean, by, by the Renaissance, end of the Renaissance, early modern period, you you have right, you have censuses, you have standard like the you know the U.S. is a pre-Napoleonic state and we have a census in our constitution, right? So right. you have you have standardization, you have. Um, institutionalization, you have centralization. And actually France was one of the most centralized uh, – had one of the most centralized state apparatuses, you know, well prior – it was still an aristoc- you know, sort of feudal aristocratic state, so it had all kinds of discontinuities, which is why when the revolution takes over, it literally just like, you know, deletes all the old province boundaries and it creates like perfectly, you know, perfectly same-sized provinces all over France. Anyways, uh, so you have all of that. But what you didn't have was the ideological connection that would allow you to actually mobilize the entire population. That was the difference, right? Was that the you know, every individual in the estates, remember there were I mean, this is actually while people Schmidt, as I recall, makes this point quite effectively, right? That like the great the great innovation, if you want to call it of the French Revolution was that the third estate, you know, abolished the other estates and said that it was speaking for the people as a whole, right? So when you have three estates then the peasants don't think of themselves as like just parts of, you know, citizens of, of France who, you know, whose fate is entangled with that of the destiny of the French nation, right? They see themselves as people with particular sets of rights and duties and obligations. They get pissed off when those are, when those are trodden upon by the aristocrats or the, or the clergy. But nonetheless, they have, they have this kind of relational moral order. And the, the innovation of the revolution is to abolish that and turn it into a kind of absolute moral order, where there's like a direct connection between the the people, as in like the mass of people, and the French nation. And then it's Napoleon who's able to then mobilize that with the Levee en masse. Right? Where like literally like you had and you basically had a, a you had a order of magnitude change in the scale of warfare. Because it wasn't just about, you know, in the eighteenth century monarchs would get away with with like mercenaries. You have mercenary armies because the scale of warfare is so small because most people who are fighting in a war are basically being forced into it by some either payment or sense of or for, or some kind of feudal obligation or national obligation. They're not, as it were, fighting for their country, so to speak. And so it's really the nineteenth century where you have this sort of totalization and mobilization of warfare. And right, I mean, it, if you it, it, yeah, if you read about that, the... we're we we're we're, we're we're exiting that period, right? The U.S. Army is not a conscript army; it's a volunteer army. It's much smaller than a Le'Veon Ma's army
0: would be. Right. I was just going to comment that, like, if, if you read about the, you know, the wars of the Machiavellian period, like, the number of people just on the battlefield was quite small, right? Like, it just wasn't mm-hmm. that many people. And, like, it, the, you know, you, this again, we, we don't anymore, right? Because, like you're saying, like, war is downscaling. And one of the shocking things about the Ukraine conflict that I wrote about when I was there is that, you know, it, it was a total war, right? Like, the whole nation yes. had been mobilized to defeat, to repel this invader, which is something that the West hasn't seen in 80 years, like something that I only know from like World War II movies, right? The thought, like yep. to see a railroad station with people shipping out in one direction and just thronged with with refugees and air raid sirens going off, like all this World War II shit, like nobody has seen yep. in the West in a very long time. And yet you just go to like Western Ukraine, which isn't even like in the thick of it, and you see it, right? Or you used to see it, probably not anymore. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's interesting that... Um, but, I but, but this the actually point. goes
1: to my second criticism of right. the network state, which which is, I think, more novel, which is that I think it's easy to look at Ukraine and see it as a story of this sort of national mobilization. And there's, there's something to that, right? The level of commitment and sacrifice has just been cr- tremendous. But commitment and sacrifice, et cetera, would not be enough to stop the Russian armies as incompetent as they were. It's the fact that Ukraine was was able to hook in to— the global military resources of the American empire very quickly, right? I mean, right. and very early, you know, beginning really in probably November or December in ways that haven't yet really been fully exposed or fully, like, acknowledged. Um, and so this is the second problem with the network state thesis is that not all nation – you know, biology seems to have it that all nation states will kind of break down the same, and that's just not true. Some nation states will – basically cease to function as nation states. I mean, I think this is probably true for, like, most of Africa, for instance. And, in fact, in political science, um, many of these states today would already call it quasi-nation states, right? In some cases, like Somalia, it's a failed state, they, they technically have all the markers. They have a flag, they have a capital, they have a parliament, whatever, but it doesn't actually control anything. Um, that, that might be true of, of many places in the, third, in the developing world, especially with climate change. That's not going to be true of Russia or China or the United States, and actually, especially once you have um, global, you know, satellite fly- 5G and low Earth orbit based on, you know, on, on SpaceX and other American space companies, the, 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 and of China, or China is the only country that even, is even in the running to be able to, to do something like that. I don't know of any other country in the world that is that's really going to be capable of that at least in the next 100 years or 50 years. Um, then nation, nation states and network states that are blessed by American support are going to have a, a level of kind of, of resiliency and a level of capacity uh, that other states are not. Um, and so paradoxically, I think biology is missing out on the, on the most important network of all, which is the network of American client states in his analysis of the network state.
0: Well, Bolster's blind spot is that he thinks the American Empire is constantly falling, and everything's going to hell in the U.S. It doesn't quite do that, and so it, it kind of throws a wrench into his theory, unfortunately. Yes,
1: exactly. Yeah, like there's an interesting question, and Bruno has this problem too. Of like, do you think the American Empire has gotten more or less powerful in the last twenty or thirty years? And the, the like conventionalism seems to be less powerful, but literally every single, uh, almost every single empirical indicator of note suggests the opposite.
0: Right. I mean, the U.S. still has, what, 10-plus carrier groups, <laughs> which is yeah, more yeah. than the rest of the world combined. Um, yeah. <laughs> so. And the
1: qualitative advantage in those carrier groups is, is growing, right? The centrality of the U.S. dollar has only increased since the global financial crisis, uh, even though it was caused by that. Um, I mean, Adam Tooze's book, Crash, is really good on this. Um, American dominance over global communications networks has massively increased and is poised to, to you know, to 10x, in terms of its centrality. Um, cultural networks? I don't—American I mean, American soft power is massively growing alongside the Internet, right? The Internet—this is what Mark Andreessen thinks. He thinks that the world is going to get much weirder uh, in the you know, Western-educated, uh, industrialized, Western-democratic. It's going to—the the, world—American soft power is only going to grow in influence over the next 50 years. And you can look at, like, indicator after indicator that says the same thing.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, American soft power is always incredible. I was talking to a random thing, a developer that I hired, and he was in Berlin. And I was mentioning like good craft beer spots because if if, and I've lived in Berlin, if you go to the the best German beer bars are basically American craft beer bars, not run by Americans, like American style craft beer bars that, that look as if they had been literally fucking drop shipped from, like, Portland, Oregon, <laughs> and it's in, like, in Kreuzberg in the middle of, of Berlin. It's like, what the fuck is this? And, like, we, Americans have managed to sell beer to Germans. Like, it's just, that's just simple. It's like, what the fuck? Um, and, um, yeah. Although, I mean, again, you, but then you have people who say, I mean, even Rod Dreher, who, again, is a little bit of, uh, he's partaking a little bit in that oikophobia, that new oikophobia of the new right, is like, oh, Americans are so not respected abroad. We're no longer a shiny example because X, Y, and Z. What, have you done any credence to that, or do you think that that's just anecdotal and in reality? I, well. I mean, so,
1: so I, think, I think that one of the challenges here, right is um, it's kind of like a J-curve, right? Like you, you can advance extremely quickly along, uh, you know, you, along the line of a process in an unsustainable way, and then you'll naturally kind of retreat from that high watermark. But then the tendency is to say, like, oh, no, we're declining. But it's like, no, actually, it's just a consolidation. Uh, after <clears> – <throat> I mean the high-water high market of American global influence in, in the 1990s was obviously unsustainable, right? You can't literally be the world's most powerful country and be a universally beloved kind of polity, right? It's just an impossible idea. Um, and so I don't think a retreat from that very recent ideal tells you that American power is really declining, right? Like – you know, Rod, Yeah, I'm following Rod's posting about this, and any, all the countries he's posting from, American. They're only saying that because American soft power has increased so much in those countries. Like, do you think America has more influence in Hungary today than it does did in 1990? Absolutely. So maybe right. it's less universally below, but the actual like qualitative level of influence is ma- you know manifoldly higher. You see the global spread of like American political ideals in both directions, right? You have, like, Putin coming out against, like, Wokism. Um, right. Also, you know, for the French have coined the term uh, Wokism. Um, you have, on the other hand, you have, like, BLM protests in Finland. It's just, it's an insane level of, of cultural soft power. And there's a weird way in which the opposition to it is an evidence of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, of course. I mean, that makes sense, right? They wouldn't be resenting Americans if, in fact, they didn't have to contend with it, right? Yeah, they. It's just it was something on their on their radar screen. Um, yeah, I mean, the, I wonder how much that influence of wokeism is real. It's funny. I I advise there's an Israeli company that I advise, and I was you know going on about like the diversity thing and this and that, and apparently you're seeing wokeism in 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 a you know tribal, religio, ethno state <laughs> called Israel, mm-hmm. in all places. And I can't even imagine what the Orthodox segments of society make. Of, aspects <laughs> of wokeism. but yet somehow among the seculars in Israel, it's becoming like a thing, and um, American religious concepts are being mapped onto Israel. It sounds crazy to me, um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, the it's funny. The weird thing about soft power is that I mean, a a lot of the you know, one thing that maybe always kind of doubt the Chinese story of like the Chinese taking over the world is that they seem to have basically zero soft power. Yes, right, yep. <laughs> like like zero, like no, like and it it sounds ridiculous, and it's it says nothing about them as a culture the values of culture per se, but it's like, are, does anyone want to be them? And like all this business is about all their investments in Africa. It's like, are African elites sending their children to, to Tsinghua University or Cambridge or Harvard? Where are they sending their kids, right? Because that, that's clearly those elites are betting on the future. And I don't think they're putting them on planes to Beijing, right? And, and right. There's, some, there's, something about, there's something about Russia and China that ultimately it's like ethno-tribalism mixed with plenty of xenophobia that is like the glue that holds them together. The the thing is that, like, that's a hard sell, right? The only way you win the world is by out-reproducing it, right? Like, well, actually, Russia does have imperial touches to it, and you see it in the war in Ukraine, right? Like, a lot of the the forces on the ground are not even ethnic Russians, right? There are other no, ethnic no, no, they're other ethnic minorities
1: from, like, yeah, the, from the, the Caucasus and from the Caucasus, which is exactly
0: yeah. what the Roman army was like. They had Syrian archers yeah. and mm-hmm. and you know Spanish, whatever. I mean, that that's exactly the nature of an empire. And it, and and what you see It's funny that the that the Natcons actually take the Russian side. It's it's actually imperialism versus actual nationalism that you see in the Russia Ukraine war. Um, and it's it's anyhow that's a whole long thing. But Uram's whole thing about nations versus imp- imperial side it's odd that. The new right lines up on the Putin side, but whatever. Um, but, you know, a- again, how do you how do you take over the world without universalism? That's the problem. Right. Can you even do it? And it, this is one of the both problems and the, fe- the bugs and features of liberalism is that it is a universal philosophy that tries to basically swallow up the world. Right. In a way that, you know, Han Chinese ethno nationalism just never will. Right. Um, do you agree? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah.
1: you don't have to take over the world, right? And there's some value in just resisting – there's some alpha in just resisting universalism, right? But I, I think – I mean as attractive as America's, American ideology might be to many people, I think it's even simpler than that, which is – like if you look at like, Rome, Rome's power – obviously Rome's, part of Rome's power was his military, unbelievably competent, successful, powerful military. But once, you know, once that was taken care of… The other element of Roman thinking power is just its infrastructure. Like Rome provided right. services that were valuable, com- common goods that are valuable, a road network, a currency, a legal system. And I think if you look at like what's driving American power, it's just it's as much of those things as anything else, right? Like, you know, not only does the Chinese not only do Chinese oligarchs send their kids to Harvard, they want to send as much of their money to right. to the West as possible, right? Not, not, not just for investment opportunities, but also because they won't be stolen from them,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like you go to um, Vancouver, right? And they have to pass all these laws to make sure that, you know, you know, Chinese oligarchs don't buy a, or they've basically bought up all of Vancouver. It's like, you know, you don't go to Shenzhen and see like Connecticut money there, right? Yes. Not that the Chinese would sell That's it right. to them. But it, like, even if they did, you, nobody would be betting on that long term. So again, that kind of undermines... The whole Chinese story to me a little bit.
1: Yep. But, yeah. Now, so the the one the one thing that kind of pushes back against this is like, well, does to what extent does the West? Ca- if the most powerful thing going for America is that it's the ultimate network state, which I think is the best rebuttal to Baloghi's whole thing. <laughs> it's just that America is like, you know, it's sort of like what's that line from Futurama? Like, you know, why doesn't Ross, the biggest friend, just simply eat all the other friends? Um. You know, America's the biggest network state. Why doesn't it just eat all the other network states? Um, but the best counter argument is that the America seems very busy kicking as many people off of its network as possible. And, and the one thing that might actually catalyze a kind of real meaningful counter organization would be just the people who got kick, kicked off of the American network the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, North Koreans, whatever. And you are seeing some of that development. But even if we do get that, at best, what you're going to have are two blocks that are defined not really ideologically, but by underlying access to underlying global infrastructure, access to underlying planetary financial infrastructure, legal infrastructure, actual communications infrastructure in terms of 5G networks, uh, in terms of chipsets. Like who's making chips? Who's training the largest like LLMs and machine learning systems? Ultimately, there's economies of scale to all of these things, the network effects to all of these things. Um, so there's a weird way, right, again, which ne- the network state idea as applied to like these small microstates depends on the kind of grace of of a large block, whether it's the, it's the Chinese block, which is really just the Chinese block, or the American
0: block. Yeah, it's weird. It's funny you mentioned it, That I guess, yeah, ironically, the biggest competitor topology in network state would be, you know the US itself right in the sense that like imagine you're an elite you know i don't know brazilian right or indian or something it's like well do you bet on the balaji microstate that has like one neighborhood in every american city or do you just join the american borg which has all the rest anyhow and, like it's somehow it's like imagine these were like credit card programs what right and one gives yeah. you points back on like one like very small set of transactions and the other is like the Amex oh. Platinum card. You just get 3% back on everything. It's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I want to switch cards.
1: <laughs> yep. And so, you know, again, if you go back to the analogy, the one thing that might make the the, biology stand more attractive was if the American network state uh, was taking people off its network all the time. If you couldn't be certain if your access to your you know whether your investments will be protected, as it were. Um, but again, this is another where, where, another area where actually existing America presents a problem, which is that you know America already has network states. Um, they're called the states, the fifty states, right? You're already seeing huge amounts of geographical, especially since 2020, huge amounts of like relocation, geographical sorting by partisan ideology. Um, your red states are getting redder, blue states are getting bluer. And this is a increasingly – it becomes a kind of a virtu- virtuous cycle where the bluer a state gets, the less comfortable, not just in terms of the culture, but also in terms of policy. It becomes for people who are more like red state inclined. Um, and so you're already seeing these kind of sorting effects within the states. And as long as the federal government – as long as the federal government is weak enough that it can't really move against the states in a meaningful way, then what you could see is just a kind of like – the network state model within the existing political boundaries of the United
0: States. You know, I could see that. And, you know, I, I had this conversation earlier today. It's like, well, can't federalism just kind of solve this? And, you know, the problem is that at least in, in, in history, right? In the United States, it's a, a creedal nation founded on this sacred document, passed, you know, passed down by prophetic founders, interpreted by this rabbinical court, right? It's like this big, it's like this massive reboot of like covenantal Judaism, right? From see from a certain Jewish perspective. Um, <laughs> But the problem there is that obviously that's why our political differences are so heated, because they assume they assume the character of like a religious schism. Right. And but in those religious schisms, typically what happens is that one side uses some instrument of the federal government to impose its interpretation of the sacred document on the other. Whether that be the US Army in the case of the Civil War, the Civil Rights Movement, whether that be the Supreme Court or whatever it might be, like at some point, be, because either side is always on some religious crusade, it always seeks to impose, if it can, its interpretation on the other. It's like you know, you well, never just get very, this, this I CIA submit- disagree.
1: That that's a very recent yeah. phenomenon, right? If you have the Civil War, which is like the big the big kahuna, um, you know, a kind of unlivable national fracture. But then when it comes to the rabbinical court, the Supreme Court, it really, it's really only been since um, the the Warren Court um, that it's taken on that role as the kind of rabbi in chief. And one of the one of the goals of the conservative majority now is to basically strip the court of that function, right? Because the traditional American model was you had a religious schism, and then one of the schismatic groups went off into the wilderness and just built their own city, and built their own polity, and did their own thing. Um, and, like, that's the actual history going back to 1620 and the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And in addition, there's never been, America's always had this sort of religious, um, creedal character, but it's also already always had this commercial character and this, you know, re- character of religious tolerance and this character of just leave me to hell alone um, to use kind of four examples from Albion Seed. Um, so these things are always kind of bouncing around and, I think the remarkable thing is, is the decline of pluralism as a principle. And I've, I've sometimes joked that the kind of real closing of the American frontier wasn't in, like, late 19th century. It was Waco and the kind of destruction of one of these sort of incipient religious groups that was kind of going off to do their own thing by the federal government. Um, but maybe that power is waning, right? So I think, I think an interesting kind of inflection point in the next 15 or 20 years is does the federal government's ability to, to enforce this sort of rabbinical – you know, the, the creed uh, increase or does it decrease?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, ideally it would decrease. I mean, obviously the federal government is like hyper bloated since Lincoln and FDR, right? I mean, you think back that Lincoln yeah. fought the civil war with like a hundred person war department or something. Or I mean, I, yeah. I assume by the end, it was probably more than that. But, you know, initially the federal government would probably have fit into what would now pass for a very large conference room or something, right? And that's obviously not even remotely the case anymore. Um, and, you know, I it, it, I think the COVID thing, right, and the whole r- work from home thing, which might be kind of a receding wave, but nonetheless, like I think a lot of people realize that like the best place to live in America is like in a purplish city in a red state, right? It turns out yep. that often in terms of like price for quality ratio and, you know, these little luxuries called rule of law, for example, um, you can often get those better in like, reno or austin or nashville or miami or whatever the case might be way more than you can in say san francisco um and so who knows right like i you know i'm officially a nevada resident although i'm time to from san francisco right this second and you know i go over the sierra and it's just it is a different world (laughs) over there um not just geographically it goes from like alpine to desert but then just the, the attitude to everything is just completely different in the silver state versus the golden state. Um, yep. and, and, and this uh, is before
1: Starlink, right? This is before, I mean, right. I think Captain Boyle's notion that like Starlink might save American mothers is absolutely right. Um, right. Like this is when work from home was still only possible in a, a large but finite number of cities with broad- broadband and fiber connections fast enough to support like very high quality Um, video conferencing, right? Um, You add 5G, you add maybe some kind of metaversal dimensions to this, and then suddenly work from home becomes possible anywhere in the United States.
0: Yeah, I mean, I had a Starlink on my back deck in the high desert outside of Reno, and that's what I used, and I'm kind of spending more time in San Francisco, but that's n- not driven at all by work at all, even though I'm getting back into tech and the whole thing. I could have raised the whole round and done everything remotely. It was just being close to my kid and, uh, you know, the kid's stubborn mother yep. who refuses to move from San Francisco. But that's really what kind of drove me back. I had nothing, nothing to do with with accessibility or access or anything else. Um, yeah. um, interesting. Well, John, this has been an amazing conversation. We have, we have really riffed here in lots of interesting... Um, Lots of interesting directions. Um, we've had a lot of points. I, you know, if you've got like a review copy or those, the set of essays you talk about the network state, I would love to, to read that uh, if possible.
1: Yeah, so the, you can find, if you just Google uh, reality, a post-mortem, uh, you'll probably find it, or the New Atlantis. New Atlantis is an amazing magazine, uh, print and digital of like culture, science, and technology. They had, I think by far, they were the magazine with by far the best record on COVID from really early on. Um, so I, I highly recommend them to you. Um, the first one is already out from the paywall. It's called Reality is Just a Game. And it's about uh, how ARGs, alternative reality games, uh, aren't just uh, something that a few like, QAnon types are engaged in. It's actually the structural principle of all media and all kind of public discourse today. Uh, and then the second essay called uh, How Stuart Made Tucker, which is about the transformation of news media,
0: uh, will be out from a paywall sometime this fall. Great. Well, yeah, no, I second the new Atlantis recommendation. It's up there kind of like with, I would say, Tablet and a few other publications that are kind of like weirdly heterodox, but then also super serious from an intellectual point of view. And um, yeah, it's funny how, like, if you look at the Delta between, like, say the New Yorker and the Atlantic versus some of the publications we just named, it's amazing how a lot of the smaller pubs are just so much better <laughs> I, but even like the most culturally elitist angle, which would typically be the province of the New Yorkers of the world, it's like, no, these other ones, like the writers are just smarter <laughs> and then just um, <laughs> better read. And like, like, you know, it's like kind of like the midward, the, the midwit meme thing a little bit. Um, so, OK, um, I'll definitely look it up, John. Thanks. And then also if people just want to read more of your stuff. John, I know that you don't you don't shy from the limelight exactly, but you're definitely your brain has not been eaten by Twitter. It seems
1: no, I'm trying to, uh, you know, I, I'm much more interested in speaking to people who are ready to have a conversation than trying to just kind of like pump up my micro celebrity.
0: Well, I mean, that's one of the joys of academia, right? That you can, you can be exactly. the monk on on the mountaintop. And yeah, I mean, Twitter definitely does not facilitate. It definitely sparks thoughts. I think if I completely unplugged from Twitter, I'd be a little bit out of it. Um, and that's why I find it hard. It's like, it's like, it's like taking a, it's like taking a healthy amount of meth right like i'm sure if you actually limited yourself like a quarter of a dose you actually would be more productive but that's somehow that's not a stable point for most humans
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that i Aventikash rao had a really interesting tw- twitter storm about this like a couple of months ago that exactly reflected my thinking which is and i, I don't know if you know michael sikasas who writes and no. also writes under lm sikasas um yeah yeah, yeah. He has oh, a book yeah, yeah. coming yeah. out on mcluhan and uh yeah. on uh, sorry like 50 questions asked about the new technology or something. Um, brilliant guy. He and I have talked a lot about this, about the difficulty of living a real intellectual life today, um, surrounded as we are by, well, not just being surrounded by distraction, but a, a very new and peculiar and perverse kinds of distractions which have never existed before in human history. So on this on this Twitter on this you know tweet thread, Rouse suggested that there's like this trade-off, which is if you like give your mind over to the the the, the uh, to the Twitter unit, the Twitterverse. Uh, particularly if you have the right kind of Twitter feed, then you'll be able to see into the future—three months, six months, longer into the future. But it'll be, you'll have a very difficult time, like silencing the, sto- the storm and, and coming up to new, coming up to for, with a new perspective for yourself. Um, alternatively, you can like log off, touch grass, um, and. Reflect and think and, and approach things in a new way, but you really are cutting off a very valuable analytical um, a very valuable analytical tool and at the middle position doesn 't really work either way because you lose some of the kind of sharpness of, of the kind of oracular sharpness of just immersing yourself in the feed, but you also don 't have the silence required to do serious intellectual work so i 'll probably kind of try to do like a telebian thing like a ninety ten of I haven't decided whether my 90 will be 90% online versus 90% offline. <laughs> I think it can go either way, but I think it's got to be kind of the deep
0: stream. So I don't think the middle works very well. Yeah, it's a problem. It's almost like uh, the Mentats in Dune. It's weird because I never make Dune analogies. <laughs> it's not really my thing. But like if they have too much spice, I forget what happens to them, but like their brains melt or something. And But th- but that's the thing. And like, But if they stop taking the spice, they stop being Mentats and they stop seeing the future or navigating yeah, exactly. the exactly. That's exactly what it toward. is.
1: And it, yeah. it really is the thing. I mean, I, I'm sure you've had the just on knowing the, the circles you run in, you've had the feeling of of literally knowing the future. So Like on COVID, like if you were right. reading the white, right Twitter feeds in December 2019, you right. literally saw the future. Like on yeah. on on Russia stuff. I mean, this is my my field. Like all the Russianists I know were, were like pretty sure Russia was going to invade in like December 2021, January 2022, and like I, I'm I'm sure I wasn't the only one who actually made like financial bets that were very successful just based on this foreknowledge. And if you watch the media, you, would, you didn't know until the Russians were crossing the border that they were actually gonna do it. Um, at the same time, like maintain, maintaining that level of, of you know very online brain really skews your ability to do other kinds of work.
0: Yeah, I think it's funny. I'm, I'm sure you've seen, you've known people like, and you've watched them in like slow motion go crazy on Twitter. I've seen that happen with more than one person. I won't name names, but I've seen, you, <laughs> I, I've seen brains get eaten by Twitter. And just become this like you know slobbering idiot that now just like is in the same loop and is not really worth following anymore, and um it's a cautionary tale john
1: well no that that's definitely true, and you know and I actually go into this a little bit in the the reality is just a game um, essay, but you know i think I think you know all, all of this analysis of social media addiction has the problem of many addiction studies, which is like focuses on the median case, whereas the median case is completely um uh, irrelevant. Because you actually have – because you, you have a very, very – you have like a Poisson distribution. You have like a very small number of people who are extremely, extremely addicted uh, and very, a very large number of people that are just mildly addicted. Um, kind of like marijuana. You see this in marijuana, right? Like if you look at the median numbers from marijuana, it tells you completely the wrong story because it's a story of super users. So the problem with things like Twitter is – As you become a kind of influencer and as your kind of life projects and your money, your grift becomes kind of wrapped up with a particular community, then your incentives, not just your financial incentives, but also your social incentives, your, like, dopamine, like, neurological incentives, become completely wrapped with this cybernetic apparatus of, like, punching out tweets and getting instant feedback. Um, And it's just completely destructive, I think. And I think the only way to win is not to play
0: yeah I mean not to name any names, <clears throat> Michael Tracy, but um yeah there's definitely a lot of people who are in that uh who are in that bucket yeah I mean that that's kind of why I bailed on media in two thousand and nineteen and went back to tech because it's like all right dude this is this is obviously driving me fucking crazy, and like the reality is again, not actually naming names this it's like the only the only prize for winning that game is to become the next like Twitter fool <laughs> like that's it that's the only prize you don't there's no winning really ever um like you can't actually make so much off the grift, at least most people such that it was like, oh, this is it. This is like a lifestyle anyhow, it's, yeah. That's kind of why- Well, that's you, kind of you, why can't make, yeah.
1: you can't make that much money off the grift yet. And this is one of the interesting things about Web3. It's like the interesting question for me about Web3 is not like what's it gonna do to currency or what's it gonna do to smart contracts. It's like, what's it gonna do to religions? What's it gonna do to right. cults? Because suddenly the incentives of content creation go massively away from, from mass content creation, which is really the 20th century business model to niche content creation. My favorite example of this is, is, and I use this, I use this on Jeff Schollenberger's podcast, is Kanye West. He, he dropped uh, Donda Two, his follow-up to Donda, but you could only get it by buying the Stem Player, which is like this MP3 device that he created with Kano Computing, unless you like live remix stuff you're listening to, um, and it comes preloaded with Donda Two. And what he said, which is basically too true, was that like you know 60,000 people, not even that many. Like 60,000 people, 10,000 people buying this $200 device to get down to 2 drove much more revenue than that, you know, than the album going platinum today because the streaming revenues are so small. So as you have like diminishing marginal returns to, to scale because of the internet, then actually all the alpha is in niche, like producing niche content is valued very highly by a small number of people,
0: which is a recipe for cults, which is where we're headed. Right. But it's funny, but like, I mean, that's one of the things I kind of, you know, mildly trolled Balaji for. It's like, dude, you got to go full cult leader, man. Like, like you got to, you got to, you you know, not <laughs> this is an unflattering comparison. In, in and, you know, obviously Balaji doesn't actually want to go in that direction. But look at Jim Jones, for God's sake, and what he could do before the Internet. Right. He literally convinced hundreds or thousands of people to go to the middle of nowhere and kill themselves. It's like, man, what? How? how yeah. How, how does that not happen now? Well, it's going to happen. I mean,
1: I, I expect it already has happened. I expect the, the already like first full-scale internet era cult is already out there. just hasn't been recognized as such yet. Because if you go back, if you read the stories of any cult, particularly the really, really culty ones, so much of the resources were spent on finding people to join it. My favorite example is the Heaven's Gate cult, which was founded in like the late 60s or 70s, and then spent the next 20 years Literally like driving around in vans to UFO conventions and like paranormal activity conventions and things just to kind of hard sell people to find enough people to join the cult to do what they wanted to do because that was the only way you could find people. Well, now we have social media, which is just search engines for people, search engines for ideas, search engines for people who like those ideas, et cetera. Um, And so it seems to me that, that it's never been easier to start a cult. And that was even before you had like tokenization and other kinds of interesting Web3 technologies, which will make running a cult much more
0: profitable. Right. I mean, like if you look at the structure of a DAO, it seems idealized. It seems ideal for a cult, right? Um, absolutely. It, 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 and it I've never really thought about right? the user like acquisition. I mean, we,
1: we can joke about it in terms of like literal, like insane Heaven's Gate UFOs are coming stuff, but it also creates kind of cult like tendencies in any organization. And this is another thing. I think this is something in favor of Bology's network state is, You know, there's a, you you mentioned in your review this question of you know who's going to die for biology stand. And if right. you think about what you what you're willing to die for, one element of that is like what what are you hoping to pass on to your pro to your legacy, your progeny, um, right. in 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 the form of a kind of inheritance, a cultural inheritance, but also a literal physical inheritance of a place of a of a of actual property, etc. Well, on Web 1 and Web 2, for a variety of reasons, you couldn't really have property. You couldn't really invest in the Internet in a way that that you could carry with you and that would reward you over time, right? Uh, Unless you were actually found in, like, a company, but then you're investing in the company, not the Internet. But now you can, right? Or or soon you'll be able to, right? You'll soon be in a situation where, you know, you can have – you can imagine some DAO founder going to his son and saying, Wherever the light touches in Stan is yours because I have this cache of, of tokens that gives you enough votes to rule Stan. right? So you have this. You know, I do think that that the way that DAOs can incentivize loyalty, um, I don't know. It, it's it's a kind of technological fix for like. When we think about media and changes in media, Marshall McLuhan is really good on this. We usually think about it in terms of things that deliver messages. So you can go from writing on, tab- writing on tablets, to papyrus, to code the codex, to the printing press, to the newspaper, et cetera, et cetera. But McLuhan's favorite example of a medium was light bulb because it encodes no content. And yet you can, you can as McLuhan does, show all kinds of effects of the light bulb as a medium has, so the DAO as a medium is going to have all kinds of effects on any kind of organization that does or could use a DAO, regardless of the content of that organization. So, for example, this like the fact that it create it can create this kind of stickiness of loyalty will shape cults, but it will also shape, you know, hobbies. It will, it will shape political associations. It will shape, uh, you know video games or companies or whatever you want to run with a DAO will be reshaped by this inherent tendency within it, or at least to set up a certain way. Um, so, I mean, th- these are the things I think that political scientists should be thinking about and studying, and very few of them are so far.
0: So it's kind of a market gap there. Well, John, well, clearly I, it, I sense a market opening for you, John, to, to become the, the expert on the network state or, you know, the eventual political advisor to, to the next network. Well, that's kind of a horrifying vision. I hadn't quite thought about the fact that, Crypto actually creates incentives for, you know, creating cults in the cloud, so to speak. Um, Absolutely,
1: I think that's one of the main things that it does.
0: Huh? And yet we haven't seen it yet. But maybe, we're, maybe it's still early days, and we'll see one in the well,
1: future. We haven't seen. Well, uh, this is what I think. I, I think it's already out there. I just we haven't we haven't labeled it as such yet.
0: Interesting. Okay. Well, we have run waiver time. I know it's late where you are. Later where you are, John. Thanks for joining us. This was this I just this, this conversation very, went very well. It was as fascinating and wide ranging as I thought it would be, even though it had no no fixed agenda when we started it. Um, yeah. Uh, and then John again. I in terms of reaching I mean, you're you're on Twitter, but you've also got your faculty website. Any, anything else? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter.
1: You can find me my email on the faculty website. You can find my writing uh, recently, especially at the New Atlantis, and um you know i'm 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 now a senior fellow at the Lincoln Network, and so I'll be doing a bunch of their in person events this year as well including in oh my Miami, god so we're we're uh,
0: we're kind of colleagues I have the same title i didn't I didn't realize that okay yeah huh okay, great and you should all check out the Lincoln network, which is not the Lincoln project by the way um at thank dot org um great thank Join you, thank- org,
1: I think it dot org Lincoln project related about
0: it yeah, yeah. Sorry, it's not. I yeah. I defaulted to like oh, get's the other thing because usually apps use get. So yes, you're right. It is <laughs> So sorry. Although word has it, there's a rebranding going on, but nothing. Yes, nothing.
1: We've been we've been associated with the pedophiles of the Lincoln Project for a little bit too long.
0: That that's the mnemonic. LP is pedophiles. Lincoln Network is tech. It's very easy to remember. Just keep it straight in your head. Um, <laughs> okay. Thanks, John. Uh, good night, everybody. Alright. Um, right, see ya. Bye.